it is time to begin. Has everybody gotten a handout? There's two handouts there on the back stand. One is a set of notes for tonight, and another one is just a quick reference sheet, half sheet of paper of the different kings. And um, so you got their names there. You kind of know the order that they go in. That's not how they appear in the Bible. They appear all jumbled up. I mean, there's Israelite kings, or is the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. Um, are, they just run chronologically in our Bible. So they're not, uh, they're not set up exactly like a list of the kings of Judah and the list of kings of Israel. All right, so <clears throat> uh, if uh, those that are tuning in by YouTube, they didn't get that cheat sheet for the kings. Um, so, but they, they are uh, more than welcome to make their own, not hard to do. You just got to read both books of the Bible, that's all. So let me open us in a word of prayer and we'll begin here. Uh, Father, we do give you thanks for your goodness to us. We ask your blessing on our time tonight as we look at your word. And uh, Lord, help us to gain insight, not only into what you have revealed, but even into our own hearts as we look at these different kings. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, <clears throat> let, me, let me start with a question. Why is it important for us to understand what's happening with these kings. Okay, faithfulness and unfaithfulness, so there are examples of that. What else? Think, think of big picture. Mark. More specifically, his hand in the affairs of the Jews is going to show us from a historical perspective how God is working with the Jews, how he is using uh, different kings, how different kings are responding uh, to God, and the effect that these kings then have on the people they're leading. And when you, when you look, especially if you, you know, 1st and 2nd Samuel are the backgrounds to 1st and 2nd Kings. And 1st and 2nd Samuel can be summarized in looking for the godly leader. They're looking for the godly leader. And of course, David becomes that uh, godly leader of Israel. And so 1st and 2nd Kings is based upon that and and will Israel will Israel then remain faithful to the Lord so that's really the question as you come to the beginning of these two books and of course the answer that we're going to receive is no they weren't faithful and this will be demonstrated by the fact that the northern kingdom will be eliminated and the southern kingdom will go into captivity but we'll see that as we work our way through uh, these books. So there in the notes that you have received, I give you a little bit of a chronological overview, and then I kind of summarize the first 11 chapters 
and then more detail on chapters 11 through 12 there. And then we're only going to cover at the most two, the first two kings that are mentioned uh, in our class this evening. And if you look, so on the back side of your notes, you see those two kings that are given there. So you'll see that I give you the name of the king, the nation that they are king over, and then what number are they? Is this the first king of Israel? Well, Jeroboam the first is the first king of Israel. Rehoboam is the first king of Judah, and that's signified by the number in parentheses there. So that's how you know it's going to work that way. Uh, general information will be the dates. These will be the um, dates of their reign, not the dates of their life, although the end date of their reign is generally the end date of their life because they either die or somebody kills them. Um, so being a king in Israel at this time is sort of like being an animal in the wild. They never die of a natural death. <laughs> they always die from something else. Uh, they get eaten or killed or something. Um, then the length of the reign and uh, then the scriptures uh, associated uh, with that reign. Okay, so that's, that's, I just wanted to orientate you to that. Now, if you go back to the front of that page, um, at, the, at the end of our study, uh, what I would like to be able to produce for you is a, maybe a couple sheets of notebook paper or printer paper that lays out uh, the kings, their dates, and the prophets that appear with those kings. And just so you can see visually how everything fits together. And uh, something else that will also become important is the foreign kings that are mentioned in the Bible and how do they relate to all this. Okay, so turn in your Bible to 1 Kings uh, chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. First Kings chapter one. Um, let me say at the beginning here, we're going to pick up with King David, uh, but we're not going to spend a whole lot of time studying David. We're not going to study Saul. There's plenty of studies on them that just focus on them. Um, we will look at um, Solomon not in detail, but more of an overview, because that sets up, that sets up these kings. So we need to understand something about that. But I don't want to spend a tremendous amount of time on these particular individuals, because we're interested in the divided kingdom. Um, so our objective in doing all this is going to see how God is preparing his people for the coming of the Messiah. Um, God has already promised that the Messiah is going to come, that it's going to come from the house of David. That'll become important because um, some of the kings that we're going to see aren't related to David. Uh, they're going to come from the house of David. 
and uh, it's going to be a direct descendant of David. And so how is that going to work, especially when you get this obstinate people who are stiff-necked? So we're going to look at that. And uh, so let me begin with a chronological overview here. And so you have there in your notes, um, real brief, uh, put those dates in there. Um, and let, so let me fill in some of the space in between uh, those notes there you have under the chronological overview. First, let me give you a word on the dating of the kings. When it comes to trying to put a date on the kings of the Bible, it can be a little bit confusing because the Bible uses two different methods, or I should say it, it records two different methods that were used for dating of kings. Um, you have uh, some kings that are dated based on what is called the ascension year, and other kings that are dated based on the uh, regnal year. Uh, the ascension year scheme of dating is that uh, it recognizes that a king reigned um, from the first month. Let me see if I can get this right, because sometimes I get this confused. Um, so it, it views the king as reigning from the first month of the year following the year that they ascended to the throne. So let me illustrate this. If um, a man was crowned king in November, of 2021, his reigning dates actually begin January 1, 2022. So even though he came to the throne in 2021, they don't actually count him as ruling in that year. So the king that preceded him is viewed as ruling the entire year, even though he may have died at the end of October. Okay, but he just counts that whole year for his reign. So the, the ascension year says that um, the first full year of a king's reign is where you begin counting his reign. The uh, regnal year uh, counts the entire, let's, let me illustrate it this way. If, if a king came to the throne in November of 2021, the regnal year counts all of 2021 as his reign. R-E-G-N-A-L. Regnal. So... So, uh, so in that, so one says, uh, we're going to count the first year, the first full year of the king's reign. That's what we're counting. That's the ascension year. Uh, the other one says, we're going to count the year they came to the throne as the year that they began to reign. And um, this is the, the kind of dating that we're dealing with. So we're dealing with the, the kind of dating that if a king rules for one month in the year, it's the, the date views him as, as ruling that entire year. So even if they only ruled for the month of December, um, the way you record it is that they ruled the entire year. And this adds some complications to how these dates line up. Because you can have two kings ruling the same year. Okay, and, and they're just said to rule the entire year, but actually they, 
they didn't. So that's why that's important. Also, we're going to have to take into account that there are what is called co-regencies. Co-regencies where a father, often it's a father and a son, they rule at the same time. It's, it's as if they share the throne. But it, it's sort of like uh, the senators of, of uh, the United States. Every state has, has two senators. One is called the senior senator and one is the junior senator. They're technically both of equal authority and status, but the senior senator has a little bit more pull just because he's been there or she's been there longer. Co-regencies are sort of the same way. Uh, the father and the son may rule together. They may share the throne together, but the father usually always has uh, the final say. Uh, sometimes co-regencies come in because the father may be incapable of, re of ruling for health reasons or something like that, but we just need to uh, recognize that. Also, when it comes to dating these kings, it's important for us to note that the only thing we need to date these kings accurately is one fixed date. We just have to know one date, and then we can figure out everything that comes after and everything comes before because in the Bible it's laid out very systematically, very precisely. This king came to rule at this time. He ruled for so many years is usually how it's put. And so we just need one fixed date, one date that we can establish, and then we can make all sorts of conclusions from that. So uh, we have King Saul who reigned from 1150 to 1010 B.C. Um, now, we have to go all the way to the book of Acts, chapter 13. So hold your finger here, flip to Acts. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 21 is where we find out how long Saul ruled. So this is going to be uh, Paul and, uh, well, Paul and Barnabas. Of course, this is their first ministry trip. And Paul is addressing the men of Israel. We see that in verse 16. He's addressing the men of Israel, and he's pretty much giving a historical overview. And so we come down to verse 21. It says, Then they asked for a king, that is, the Israelites asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So Saul reigns from 40 years, tribe of Benjamin. That will become important a little bit later. So you might just want to jot that down in your notes. Saul is a Benjamite. He's a Benjamite. He reigned for 40 uh, years. Now, all right, we're, we're going back to the Old Testament. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. Of course, when, when Saul dies, who, di who dies with Saul? 
When King Saul dies, who dies with him? At the same time, maybe not at the same place, but Jonathan, all right? Now, why is that important? He was the heir. He was the heir. So he's the uh, Prince of Wales, so to speak. So he's the, he's the heir to the throne. So the king and um, the crown prince both get killed. And so what happens? What happened? Let's put it this way. Who, so you have Queen Elizabeth over there in England. Now, I don't think she's ever going to die, but it's possible that she could. <laughs> so her son, Charles, is the heir. Now, who's the next in line to that throne? His oldest son, William. So if Elizabeth dies... And Charles dies, who takes the throne? William takes the throne. Stanley can't go over there and say, I'm king. All right? So now let's apply that to what's happening here in Israel. Saul dies. The crown prince Jonathan dies. Do you think David can just step in and take the throne? Oh, he doesn't. He doesn't. They're immediately going to crown uh, another king. And um, let me see if I can find it here. Because I didn't highlight his name. Here we go. Go down to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Near, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth. Saul's son was 40 when he came, became uh, king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. So after Saul and Jonathan's death, it's not as if all of a sudden David comes to the throne and everybody's happy and everybody's following David. No. Uh, Saul's next son in line, Ishbosheth, comes to the throne. Abner makes him king. And that would be the natural thing to do, wouldn't it? Oh, okay, who's next? We're going to make him king. So he reigns two years, and he begins to reign, did you notice what it said? At the age of 40. He begins to reign at the age of 40. Does anybody remember how old uh, David was when he began to reign? 30. He began, we'll, we'll take a look at that. So that tells us if Bishoth is older than David, which means he's 10 years older than David, Jonathan would have been older than him, Ishbosheth would have been older than him. So it's possible that Jonathan is 12 to 15 years old, maybe even older than that, uh, older than David. 
And so that's it. That just puts something to think about and, and the relationship between Jonathan and David. Um, so you have this issue after Saul and Jonathan die where part of the nation, almost all of the nation, is following in the house of Saul and David is ruling over Judah. So you get that two-year period there. So David is going to reign from about 1010 to 970, okay, 970 BC. Now, hold your finger here. Turn back to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. Verse 11. 1 Kings 2:11 says the days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Then it tells us how his reign was divided. 7 years he reigned in Hebron and 39 or 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. So he didn't always sit in the capital. He he reigned from Hebron. So now go back to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel and turn to chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 4. So 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verse 4, says, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. Verse 5, at Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years, and six months. So he gets even more specific. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So that's King David, King David and uh, his reign. Uh, and of course, after David comes Solomon. And uh, we are told that Solomon also reigned 40 years. So let's go back to 1 Kings. I know I'm running you around your Bibles here a little bit, but that's okay. 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 42. Okay, this is at the end of the life of Solomon. And it's usually either at the beginning of their life or the end of their, or the beginning of the reign or the end of their life that you have facts like these that are given. So, First uh, Kings chapter 12, verse 42. Thus the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. So isn't that interesting? You got Saul, 40 years. David, 40 years. Solomon, 40 years. Now you math wizards out there, how many years is that all together? 120 years. So you got 120 years. You have Saul's dynasty that you, I guess you'd say lasted 142 years because you count his son's rule. Then you have the Davidic dynasty that is going to last 80 years up to the time where we're at right now. It's going to go farther than that into the future, but only through Judah. Israel's not going to follow the, the Davidic dynasty. Okay, so that's, we're pretty much up to date right now. 
And it's in, it's in right around chapter 11 and 12 here where we have the divided kingdom that comes up. And uh, the kingdom is going to be divided, and it will be divided basically at the year 931. So that's a key date in your Bible history, 931 B.C., the divided kingdom. The kingdom remains divided until 722 B.C. Can anybody tell me? Why, after 722 B.C., the kingdom is no longer divided? Well, the northern kingdom's gone. The northern kingdom's gone. So it doesn't exist anymore, so it's not divided. And you only have one kingdom left, and that's the kingdom of Judah. And so Judah will last until 586 B.C. So here's some, here's some key dates, and you need to know what goes with these dates. Uh, 931, divided kingdom. 722, Israel, northern kingdom, eliminated, or however you want to put that, Assyrian captivity. 586, southern kingdom, Judah, Babylonian captivity. So those, those are key dates around which you can start to form a big picture understanding of the Old Testament. Okay, so everybody look up here real quick. 931, divided kingdom. 586, Babylonian captivity. All right, and so 722, uh, Assyrian captivity, northern, northern uh, kingdom. So, all right, you got that. I'm going to ask you that every now and then. So the, the background to First and Second Kings, of course, is First and Second Samuel, the reigns of uh, King Saul and David, and the reign of King uh, Solomon, or setting up the reign for King Solomon here. So I want us to walk through these first two chapters of first, or excuse me, the first eleven chapters of First Kings, and this is going to be really quick. I'm only going to hit the highlights here. And uh, so I'm just going to mention chapters. I'll mention some references, but you're not going to have time to write anything down, really. Just I want you to keep up in your thinking with me. So in chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Kings, we have the issue of securing the kingdom for Solomon. Okay, the issue of securing the kingdom of Solomon. We see in chapter 1, verse 1, that David is old and he's about to die. He's, he's gone downhill fast. Uh, we see in verse 5 that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, is wanting to become king. So this is one of David's sons, Adonijah, and he wanted to become king. And so this is... Uh, Hagith is one of the wives of David, and uh, he's got his plan. As soon as David croaks, he's going to be the king. He's, gonna, he's just going to go in and make himself the king. And probably, he, he is probably, age-wise, the guy who sh would naturally be the king. So 
we uh, continued uh, to see here that what's going to happen in verse 11 is that the prophet Nathan is going to go to Bathsheba and say, pay attention to what's going on around here. Solomon is supposed to be king. You need to make sure this is going to happen. I'm paraphrasing that. But he goes to Bathsheba to say, look, you need to secure the throne for your son. You need to get David to make this clear. And that might lead us to believe that during the latter part of David's life, this wasn't a big issue. This is not something that was dinner table talk. You know, who's taking over when dad dies? Um, maybe they just didn't talk about it. Everybody kind of assumed this is how things go. David may have mentioned something once, but if he doesn't keep it up, uh, people aren't going to follow it. So uh, Nathan is the one who really initiates securing Solomon's um, role as the successor to David. And if you go over to verse 38, chapter 1, verse 38, uh, you see the priest here that's mentioned first. So it says, so Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. So Solomon is, is anointed as king here in chapter 1. Um, David's not quite dead yet, but Solomon is, you know, he's dying for sure. And so Solomon is set up uh, to be the king. If you go to chapter 2, as you go to chapter 2, David charges Solomon. He, he gives Solomon, this is his final words, this is his closing charge, this is his closing advice to Solomon. He says in verse 2, I'm going the way of all the earth, so I'm going to die just like everybody does. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, so that you may succeed in all that you do wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David says, Look, this is the promise of the Lord. This is what the Lord says do. You need to make sure you do it, Solomon. And, and these verses are just loaded with stuff that as we go through these later kings, you're going to think back and say, man, think how this king did or didn't do this. Okay, so, so we have David giving this charge. And by the time we get to verse 10, David's dead. 
Okay, chapter 2, verse 10, David's dead, he's buried. And, and that tells us about his reign in, in, uh, in verse 11 there. So by the time we get over to verse 19... Adonijah is seen as a problem. Remember, Adonijah was the other son of David who said, I'm going to make myself king. I'm going to be king next. He's not. Solomon's king. But now Solomon's got to deal with Adonijah. And so it says in verse 19, So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. The king arose to meet her, bowed down before her, and sat on his throne. Then he had a throne set for the, the king's mother, and she sat on it. And so uh, Bathsheba is coming to Solomon, and she is going to ask Solomon to give Abishag, the Shunammite, to Adonijah. Okay, and remember, we didn't look at it, but uh, Abishag, the Shunammite, is the girl that was the servant of David in his old age. Okay, and so Bathsheba says, look, you know, why don't you just give uh, Abishag to Adonijah? Well, this did not sit well with um, Solomon. And so uh, Solomon is going to have Adonijah executed because he looked, he looked at this as a, a challenge to his power uh, and throne. Um, and so he, he's going to have him, he's going to have him executed. Um, and, and so we see what Solomon is doing here is he's securing his kingdom. Now that he's the king, he's securing his kingdom. So he has Adonijah executed. Um, Joab is executed by Benaiah. We see this in verse 28, uh, because Joab followed Adonijah, so they were in cahoots together. And uh, so he's going to be killed by uh, Benaiah. Then Shimei is punished for cursing David, and he's confined in Jerusalem. However, we see that he um, leaves Jerusalem and because he left Jerusalem, he didn't follow the, the orders of his confinement. He is killed. We see this in verse 36 and following that uh, Shammai is killed. So, um, and, and so we have what, what is happening with all this here is Solomon is making sure there's nobody there who can challenge his power. These are all men, whether it's uh, Adonijah, Joab, or uh, Shimei, Shammai, who were in positions of power before Solomon became king. They had influence, and they did not side with Solomon. And when he becomes king, now they start to waffle in their loyalty. Um, and so Solomon does what kings do at that time, and that kills them. Um, and so we, then we get to chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, and here we have the first appearance of the Lord to Solomon. Here's the Lord's first appearance um, to Solomon. Look at verse 5. It says, In Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish 
wish me to give you. So ask what you want, and I am going to give it to you. Now, before this appearance, before this appearance, Solomon is characterized by forming political alliances with foreigners by marrying their daughters. Look at verse 1. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So this is very typical of the ancient world. When you formed an alliance with another country, there's usually an exchange of um, children in the sense of the one king would give his daughter to marry the other king or something like that would take place. So this is very typical, not unusual. But the thing we ought to notice is that Solomon is marrying foreign wives. Okay, that's the big one. He's marrying these foreign wives. Notice what it says in verse 2. It says, the people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Verse 3. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walked in the statutes of his father David, except. Now that's a word worth circling. Okay, So he loved the Lord. He followed the practices of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Where was Israel to sacrifice, burn incense, and do these acts of worship. Okay, the temple's not built. Tabernacle, at the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is in existence, it's set up, it's operating. So when it mentions high places here, these are not um, like regional locations for people to go worship the Lord. Uh, These are for pagan purposes. And so Solomon was still involved in pagan worship. And it's even after that, the Lord comes to him and says, Hey, Solomon, ask whatever you want. I'm going to give it to you. Ask me whatever you want, and and I'm going to give it to you. So if you look at verse 9, what does Solomon ask for? Well, it's it's not really just wisdom. That's kind of the cliff note version. What's he asked for? And specifically, what's it say? What's that? An understanding heart. Why? Look at, right from the verse. Yeah, to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. So when he, even when he asked for an understanding heart, or let's just say wisdom, even when he asked for wisdom, he wasn't asking wisdom for personal gain. He was asking wisdom for wisdom so he could rule the people well. Sounds like a pretty noble thing, doesn't it? And, and he says, for who's able to judge your people? Um, and so God, of course, gives him the wisdom that he asked for. But we also find in verse 13 that he gives him riches. Verse 13, I have also given you what you have not asked for both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. So Solomon is going to be the wealthiest 
most honorable king his entire life. No, there's not going to be king, another king on the earth that is going to be like him. And, uh, and then we get to verse 16, and this is an example of Solomon's wisdom, his ability to judge. We know that two women had babies, and one suffocates, was suffocated, and so you know the story. We're not going to get into that. So this is the first appearance of the Lord to Solomon, and it revolves around giving him wisdom and giving him uh, riches and honor. Now, when we get to chapters 4 and 5, this is about Solomon's court, Solomon's wealth, and Solomon's alliances. Okay, It goes through a whole list of names of men in his court, what they were over, what they were in charge of. It talks about Solomon's power. I'll let you read that on your own. It's interesting to read, but I'll let you read that on your own. And then it talks about the alliances of Solomon in chapter 5, uh, particularly focused on King Hiram of Tyre. And uh, King Hiram had a lot to do with the building trades, and so he supplied a lot of the resources for the building of the temple uh, and of uh, the palace, the king's palace. As we get to chapter 6, as we get to chapter 6, Here's where we get into the building of the temple, the building of the temple. So I just want to run through a few facts. We're, we, we're not uh, going to look at all this. Um, again, it's, it's worth you reading and thinking about, but uh, we're just going to move right through it quick. So this is the building of the temple. Um, why, why is Solomon building the temple? Yeah, that's right. So David was not a man of peace. Um, and so the Lord said, you can't build my temple. And so that has fallen to Solomon. And uh, the construction begins in the uh, 480th year after the Exodus. Okay, so 400, and we see this in chapter 6, verse 1, the 480th year after Exodus. So that's kind of important, right? So... We can now start to figure out some of these biblical dates. So between the Exodus and Solomon here, 480 years. That's good to know. That's good to know. So now we can figure out some chronology here a little bit later. It begins in the month of Ziv in Solomon's fourth year. No, that's even better. That's even, that's even better to know. So this is the second, uh, second month on their calendar. Okay, The dimensions of the temple are found in verse 2. So it's going to be about 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet tall. Okay, So that's, I think, uh, th this wall of the sanctuary behind you is like 66 or 67 feet something like that. So that gives you a little bit of scale, a little bit of perspective. Uh, the temple is a big place. And that's just the building proper. That's not the complex. Uh, the dimensions of the front porch were 30 feet long and 30 feet wide and 15 feet deep. It also had side chambers that weren't part of the temple proper. 
Um, and these chambers it was like a staggered system, staggered system. Uh, one was 10 feet wide, one was 9 feet wide, and one was 7.5 feet, feet wide. Uh, the stones that were used to build the temple were prepared at the quarry, so there would be no sounds of tools in the temple area. Now think about that. You're building this big building. And, and the best way to make sure you got something that fits really precisely is to not measure, is to actually fit it in where it's supposed to go and make a mark, and then you cut on the mark and it'll fit perfect every time. They couldn't do that because there couldn't be any tools making noise on the temple mount. And so all the stones had to be precisely cut at the quarry. So there's quite a bit of planning that goes in here. Uh, they covered the stones with cedar and the inside was overlaid with gold. Uh, they finally got all this done in Solomon's 11th year in the eighth month, the month of bull. So how many years is that? The 11th year of Solomon is when it ended. It began on the fourth year of Solomon. So it's fourth 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th. Eight years. Eight years of work to accomplish this. So that's quite a long uh, construction project, isn't it? Um, and then, so that's chapter 6. When we get to chapter 7, it's about, uh, the first part of it's about Solomon's palace how he builds his palace. And it took 13 years to build. Uh, it's bigger than the temple. It's uh, 150 feet long. It's 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall. So um, not quite as big as the house of the Lord. Or, or the house of the Lord is not quite as big as it. Uh, then in the second part of, of chapter 7, um, it goes into the ornamentation of the temple. We're not going to look at that. You can, you can read up on that. In chapter 8, it come, we come to Solomon's dedication of the temple. He, he speaks to the people in verse 12. Um, and, and he says in verse 12, so we're in chapter 8, verse 12. It says, Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. And then when you get to verse 22, you have Solomon's dedication of the temple, where he is going to pray for the dedication of the temple. Now, this is, this is a pretty important uh, section and again we don't have time to uh, read it but you need to read this for your homework so verse 22 kings 8 verse 22 all the way through verse 61 do that for your homework all right and uh, so that's the temple is dedicated now go to chapter 9 go to chapter 9 and verse 2, 
It says that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. So the Lord appears to Solomon twice. The first time he says, ask what you want and I'll give it to you. Solomon asked for an understanding heart. Here, the Lord appears to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. That means he appeared to him in a dream at night. And the Lord said to him, this is verse 3, chapter 9, verse 3. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built by putting my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Verse 4. As for you, as for you, Solomon, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne. Now that sounds familiar. That's exactly what, that's exactly what David told Solomon to do. Obey the Lord and he will bless you. And, he, and the Lord says, I will pass on to you the Davidic covenant. That's, that's the paraphrase here. I will pass to you the Davidic covenant. In other words, uh, Solomon will be part of that Davidic covenant if he walks in the ways of the Lord. Now, we know that that did not happen. So we come to the second part of uh, chapter 9 all the way through chapter 10 and Solomon's expanding his kingdom. He's expanding his kingdom. He's getting richer. He's gaining more lands. His power is growing. And then we come to chapter 11 and here we see Solomon's apostasy. And here's the foundation of his apostasy is in uh, chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, Okay, so he loves these women from these nations. And this is what the Lord had said about these nations. Verse 2, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Look at the end of verse 2. Solomon held fast to these in love. So Solomon's not paying attention to what the Lord said. And then we get this breakdown of his marriages. Look at verse 3. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. Now, that, that reminds me that wholly devoted, wholly devoted is something that we saw uh, back when, when David charged Solomon. So back in, you don't turn there, back in chapter 2, verse 4, 
And David's charge to Solomon, he says, to walk before me in truth with all your heart and with all your soul. And here we see in 11.4 that Solomon's heart was not wholly dedicated to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon, this is verse 6, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. And it goes on to describe some of these things that he did, he did in his apostasy. Now, one thing to point out is it seems to indicate that uh, there was a time in Solomon's life where he did follow the Lord. And it's not until his old age, it says, that his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. So Solomon was faithful for a time to the Lord. That's probably when he wrote Ecclesiastes uh, in that stretch of time. But uh, here at the end of his life, he is not following the Lord at all. And so this sets up this dilemma that you have Solomon who is in apostasy to the Lord. And what the Lord does is he raises opposition. He raises opposition to Solomon. Now look in chapter 11, verse 23. It says, God also raised up another adversary to him, uh, uh, Rezon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. He gathered men to himself and became leader of a marauding band after David slew them of Zobah. And they went to Damascus and stayed there and reigned in Damascus. So he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon, along with uh, the evil that Hadad did. And he abhorred, abhorred Israel and reigned over Aram. Now look at verse 26. Then Jeroboam, the son of uh, Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeredah, Solomon's servant. So here's Jeroboam, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was uh, Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. So here's Jeroboam. These other two guys that are mentioned, Hadad and uh, uh, Reason, they're foreigners. They're just causing... Solomon problems. They're opposing Solomon. But Jeroboam is a servant of Solomon, and he rebels. Verse 27. Now this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. Now the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he imported, uh, appointed him over all the forced labor. Actually, that's just over the labor of the house of Joseph. And it came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem 
that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road, and Ahijah had closed, them, closed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak, which was on him, and tore it into twelve pieces. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem. So that's, that's two tribes there. Okay, One tribe is for the sake of David. One tribe is for the sake of Jerusalem. And of course, that's going to be Judah and Benjamin. Verse 33, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. They have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and observing my statutes and my ordinance as their father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him... Ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I have chose, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and statutes. So, just stop right there. Why doesn't God kill Solomon or just have somebody come in and take his kingdom away? For the sake of David, because God made David a promise. God keeps his promises. Verse 35, but I will take the kingdom from his son's hand. That's the, the sons of Solomon, the son of Solomon, and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son, Solomon's son, I will give one tribe that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. So, so here I want you to see the importance of Jerusalem. God is going to keep Jerusalem under the control of the house of David. And that's because Jerusalem is the chosen city. It's the city God has chosen. And so he's going to keep that under the rule of David at where his name is. Okay, so... Most of the pagan activity is taking place up in the north, so down in the south it's more civilized and more godly. I try not to apply that to the United States, but sometimes you just have to. <laughs> and then the Lord goes on and says, look, I'm going to take you, Jeroboam, and I'm going to place you over these ten tribes, and if you will be obedient to me and walk in my ways, I will establish your kingdom. I will do that. I will make that promise. And the Lord goes on to say that uh, his affliction of David is not going to last forever. His affliction of the house of David is not going to last forever. In other words, the Lord is going to uh, hear and he will respond and he will restore the house of David even though Solomon is not treating it very well. Well, Solomon finds out about this, and he, you know, Jeroboam's a rebel now, and so he wants to kill him. He wants to put him to death. So Jeroboam flees to Egypt. 
And he's going to be there until Solomon dies, and he dies here at the end of chapter 11. So that's all the time we got for this evening. And that sets us up to start looking at uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam in detail. Okay, so we'll look at those two guys in detail next week. But I want you to realize that God, when God deals with these kings, he basically deals with them all in the same way. If you will obey, if you will follow my statutes and observe my commandments, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. If you will obey. But invariably, Almost all of them disobey. And one of the questions that we can think about is, why did they disobey? What led them to disobey? And so as we look at the different kings, we're going to see what contributed to their disobedience. Probably a more interesting question might be, why do the ones who obey, why did they obey? Why did they obey? There's some, there are some specific reasons why the good kings obeyed. And uh, we definitely want to look at that. But now, now what we see is the nation of Israel crumbling. Crumbling before our eyes. Crumbling as the result of Solomon's sin and disobeying one of the key tenets that God set out for the nation of Israel. Don't mix it up with the foreign nations. They will lead you astray. And it wasn't that long ago that God gave that word. You know, not, not in the big scale of history. Roughly 440 years before, he said, don't mix it up with those people. Keep yourself holy. Keep yourself pure. You're my people. All right, so I'm going to pray, and if you have questions, I'm happy to take questions. Lord, we give you thanks for this time that we've had today. I pray that you would bless our study and that we would learn these really important lessons from the kings of Israel and the need for us to be obedient towards you and to follow what you have uh, shown us what you have revealed to us in your word. Uh, do pray for safety as we leave here, and we do pray for our service on Sunday and the Sunday school class. We pray uh, that, um, Lord, as we come, we are ready to worship you, and uh, we are ready to hear your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Any questions about what we covered we covered 11 chapters of the Bible. Well, it was about Solomon and uh, his downfall. And that sets the stage. That gets our stage set for uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam.